Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hold the Line. I've got a couple of listener questions I'm going to start with this week. I think they've kind of been waiting a little while for a few episodes before this. So it's time to kind of cover these questions. These poor people get the help they need. So here is the first question. Hold the line. So this is a question from Matthew who says, Good afternoon. I have been considering a couple of your online courses for my lab, but I've come up with a whole new situation. I have discovered that he is gun shy and completely freaks out around anything similar to gunshots. I understand it was 100% my fault for pushing him into it too quickly. I'm hoping to start all the way back to the beginning and gradually introduce him to small sounds and work my way up. I was curious if any of your classes worked on this particular issue. Thank you. So, Matthew, I don't have a class yet on introduction to shot but i can talk to you a little bit about how i do it and we can also talk a little bit about um how you can get out of the situation that you are now in it's a little bit different it's a bit different if you are kind of starting with a dog which doesn't have any experience positive or negative around shot and you're just introducing it for the first time it's a little bit different if you've got a dog which already has worries about shot you're kind of starting from a different place there so it's important to differentiate that So I'll talk a little bit about what I do with my dogs to introduce them to shot. And I've not actually had a dog which has been gun shy having followed these, this kind of protocol. So maybe that is helpful. So what I would probably do is begin with, well, it depends actually on the sort of dog that I have, whether I'm working with a HBR or working with a retriever. But let's think about HBRs to start with. Again, I think you can do something similar with retrievers as well. So I would begin by um, teaching the dog to sit remotely. So that would be my remote sit whistle. So when I've got the dog able to sit on the whistle, they hear the whistle, they sit. Um, And then I will usually click and throw food or mark with a word and throw a toy reinforcer. And by the way, if you want to know how to do that, that is about to be covered on the Fenzy workshop that I'm going to be giving in November. And there will be also a course coming out on my own site about training that behavior too. So that's the remote sit behavior. Um, So once I've got the dog sitting to the whistle remotely, I would then add in the, the shot before the whistle, because especially if I've got HPR, I want them to sit to shot. So when they hear a shot, they would sit. And this just helps because it means that when a bird goes up, the dog gets multiple sit cues. So the... The bird itself flushing becomes a sit cue. So even in the absence of any other cues, if a bird goes up, 
we'd want that HBR to sit. The spaniel too. If a shot is fired, we want the dog to hear that shot as sit. If the whistle is blown, we want the dog to hear that as sit. So that when when something like this happens, a dog should be getting multiple sit cues. It's like the dog is hearing sit, sit, sit in multiple different ways at this moment, which is kind of, you know, what we want. We don't want them to be thinking about running in and trying to get the bird. So um, training things in this way really helps from that perspective too. So, so once I've got the dog sitting remotely to the whistle, then and I've got the dog sitting to um, the shot. By the way, I would introduce this with party poppers to start with. I've left that out, which is quite an important thing. Um, to begin with, I actually clap my hands before I even use the party poppers. So what I would do is clap my hands. Then I would do my sit whistle, beep. And then the dog would sit. Then I would click and then I would throw the treat or I would give my verbal marker and throw the toy. So the hand clap is coming, is starting to mark the place where the shot will be. Now, obviously, there's a big difference between the sound of hands clapping and a shot, but I do think it's a sudden, short, sharp sound which can prepare your dog for expecting to hear something else in that space, as it were. So it's kind of, I, I see it as a sort of place marker for the shot. So by this point, I've got, you know, I won't do the hand clapping too much, just a few times to get the dog into the idea of there's something that happens before the whistle. Um, so once we've got that happening, then I move on to party poppers and I'm assuming that everyone knows what party poppers are. They're those things that, you know, at parties and events, you like pull the little string on the end and they shoot out streamers and stuff. So you don't want to be shooting out streamers at your dog. So what you want to do is go to a pound world, a discount store, someplace where you can kind of bulk buy really cheap party poppers. And then you can take out the, the streamers from inside and the little cardboard disc that goes on the base of the party popper, just pull all that stuff out so it's kind of empty. And that way you can just pull the string and you just have a loud sort of crack noise. So I would probably probably prep those, you know, about five or six of those before I went out with my dog. And then I would pull the party popper and then I would blow the sit whistle and then I would click and I would throw the treat. So the, the party popper comes to starts to happen first. And I start to see that the dog is beginning to sit just to the party popper. It's starting to anticipate that the party popper is about to be followed by the sit whistle. So they're starting to sit just to the party popper itself. When this happens, I can, or after I've done enough party poppers, I can then move on to the starting pistol and so on and so forth. So at that point, there are various different options. Depending on whether you want to use a starting pistol, you can also use, like there's a little device that you can carry in your hand and it's kind of like in the shape of a little T and you kind of pull it. It doesn't look like a gun is the same as what I'm trying to say, but it looks um, like a little sort of T-shaped. Oh, I don't know how to describe it. Um, <laughs> it just makes the same noise. It uses the same caps as a starting pistol, but it doesn't look like a gun. And I also have this dummy, which is not available anymore, but which I've had for absolutely ages, which you can unscrew the end of and you can put a little starting pistol cap in that. And when you throw it in the air with the string, the string itself pulls um, pulls it and makes it make that bang noise. So these are different options because it's not always in, in all localities around the world a good idea to go walking around carrying something which looks like a gun these days. So you can have the gun noise without the thing that looks like a gun. Um, and then obviously there's a shotgun. So 
So these are the kind of different stages that I would go through. And I would always make sure that the dog is, especially when I first move up to any of these levels, when I first start to clap my hands, when I first start to fire the party popper, when I first start to do the starting pistol noise, that the dog is at a good distance away from me. So I would usually have someone else come and do that for me in the first couple of sessions until I see the dog is okay with it. Because I can send that other person way, way, way away from us to make the noise before I then blow the whistle and deliver the deliver the treat. So I don't run the risk of the dog being too close to me when I make the noise. And, you know, um, it's really difficult, basically, basically, once you have this sort of um, fear-based response to the sound to come back from that. It's so hard to dig yourself out of that um, in terms of counter conditioning and desensitization. It's just much easier if you can just take a bit more time with it in the first place and introduce it slowly and in a way that is positive so that you don't have to undo all of these associations that the dog has with it. So that would be kind of the, the steps that I would go through. Um, and the other reason to say that the other reason that I would do this, that I would teach the dog that the shot means sit is because dogs often come to learn that shots mean something exciting, that shots mean something's about to fall from the sky. Because if you think about it, when training classes most use shot is before a retriever's thrown. So they'll often have, you know, the dummy thrower stand down front with the dummies and the gun and they'll fire the gun and they'll throw a dummy. And so the dog comes to hear that shot as being a really exciting thing, as predicting this dummy falling through the air, as predicting the retrieve they're about to be sent on. And so the dog can get really excited by the sound of the shot. And the dog can start to be thinking about going to get the retrieve when they hear the shot. And in a way that is counter to what we want to achieve, which is steadiness at the shot and not going when you when you hear that shot. So I find it really, really helps to take the shot away from the retrieve and to not have it on the retrieve side of things at first. But if you've got a hunting breed like a Spaniel or HBR, they have it on the sort of hunting quartering side of things. So if you did want to throw something after the shot, I'd always walk out and pick it up for a very, very long time. So this doesn't come to mean that a retrieve is about to happen. Does that make sense? So, so if all goes if all goes well, that's what I would do. So if you've got a dog, I'm, I'm going to be kind of quite um, brief and general with what I say next in terms of dealing with the problems, because there's a really good, um, helpful thing to tell you, which is that if you've got a dog which is afraid of shot. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. 
So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. The good news, the really, really good news is that any number of force-free behaviorists or trainers should be able to help you with that because there's nothing inherent about the sound of a shot which is particular to gun dog training. So the way that you would deal with a dog which is afraid of shot is the same way that you would deal with a dog which is afraid of a motorbike backfiring, of a lorry or, or heavy traffic, of a pneumatic drill of, um, I don't know, what other sounds are dogs typically afraid of, whatever it is that the dog, <laughs> that dogs are afraid of, the sound, being afraid of the sound of a shot is dealt with in exactly the same way. So this is not something that you need to find someone who's really knowledgeable about gun dog training in order to be able to help you with this. You don't need that at all. You don't need that specialist gun dog knowledge. What you need is someone who's skilled in working with counter conditioning and desensitization and who can help you with, with the shot just like they would help you with a motorbike issue and or a heavy traffic issue or roadworks or whatever it is that any other dog might be afraid of. So there's absolutely nothing um, about this issue, which means you need to go and look for specifically a gun dog trainer. So the, the reason why that's good news is there's, there are loads more force-free behaviorists and trainers out there in the world than there are force-free gun dog trainers and behaviorists out there in the world. So you don't need the gun dog side of things to help your dog with this problem. So I would really encourage you to go and find someone who's experienced in working with fear in dogs. Um, and, you know, you might need to provide the shot <laughs> and you might need to give them some suggestions in terms of how you can work with lesser types of shots. You might want to start with a hand clap, for example, but you need to be working with someone who understands how to use distance, how to use counter conditioning and, you know, how to go about this properly and thoroughly because it's it's a bit too much to go into in detail here. And it very much depends on your individual dog, the distance which they're comfortable with, how they react and respond when you first start to do this. Um, but, but yeah. And the other thing I would say, though, is that you want to be looking for zero response zero interest, zero reaction in terms of fear. So a very common problem that or issue that arises is when people start to introduce shot, the dog shows a tiny bit of worry. So maybe its ears prick up a little bit, or maybe it just pauses on what it's doing and looks a bit concerned, but then it seems to recover and be okay again. And the the person training the dog thinks, oh, that was okay because my dog didn't have like a big freak out or a big reaction. It's okay to progress and it's okay to make the shot louder or closer. And that's not the right thing to do at all. So what tends to happen when we're working with fear is that little bits of fear grow quickly. So fear generalizes like wildfire. It generalizes like nothing else because it is in the sort of um, interest of the organism to to generalize fear in that way. It's about safety and keeping yourself safe. So, if you see any sort of fear when you when you do this, even slight fear, you need to back right off. You need to increase the distance. You need to reduce the sound, and you need to be making sure you're keeping your dog at a point where they're just not even aware of whatever it is. So, 
The other thing I would say is don't do 55,000 reps per session because that's just too much when you're doing this. Whether you're working on a problem or whether you're introducing this for the first time, I'd probably do like five max um, shots per session. Um, So um, I hope that helps. But the main thing I want to say is that you don't need someone who knows about gundog training to be able to help you with this. You can go and seek out any experienced force-free trainer or behaviorist who's used to working with fear and just explain to them that you have a noise aversion problem that you want to work on. That happens to be with shot. You can provide the shot. So I hope that helps. Another thing that people sometimes do before I forget is that they sometimes work with recorded noises. I'm not seeing that there's any problem working with recorded noises, but I do think that dogs... There's something different about the quality of the noise. And no matter how many different noises you work with that are recorded, it just is different in reality. And you can get to the point where your dog is completely fine with the recorded noise, even when you play it unexpectedly, even when you place the speaker in different locations around the house. The dog is totally fine, but they still are fearful of the the original real life noise. So I do think there's some sort of qualitative difference in recorded sound versus real real sound which kind of limits the 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 use value of recorded sounds which is a shame because they are really kind of you know you can control when they start and when they stop and you can place the speaker in different locations and it's just a lot easier to work with but anyway i hope that helps so go find a really experienced good force-free trainer behaviorist and just tell them you've got a noise aversion problem and you'd like to work on it with them hold the line okay folks it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor, but I don't have a sponsor. So instead, I'm going to play you a tune on my Acme 212. The Acme 212 I'm playing this week is an orange Acme 212. I think this was a gift because it would not usually be my choice of color. Anyway, here it is. stop there only because i have three dogs at my right elbow so there's no advert here because i don't get any funding for this podcast i record it and i edit it and i upload it and i pay for the server i don't want to get a sponsor because then i had to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that i think that most dog products are bollocks i would lose some of the independence and the freedom that i have at the moment to recommend the products that i want to recommend but If you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses that I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you'll also love my book, I hope, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. By the way, there were also three ways you can support me so you can support me by writing a review or give me five stars for this podcast or liking my facebook page or just generally staying in touch with me so that's the end of the whistle pause for this week let's get back to the show hold the line 
Okay, so the next question is from David, who says, Hi Joe, I've been listening to your podcast since 2019 when I was looking for my first ever gundog pup. I've recently got my pup and have a couple of questions that I can't find an answer to in your book. I'm sorry that this is a long email, but I wanted to give you as much background as I thought relevant to hopefully help you answer my questions. Back in 2019, I decided to fulfill a boyhood dream of going shooting with my own gundog. It's taken till now, but I now have a 14-week-old lab cross Springer from Working Lines bred by a gamekeeper. I got Ozzy at 12 weeks of age. Until I got him, he'd been killed with his brothers, sisters, and his parents. He'd been in cars, been used to seeing hens in a pen within the area the dogs were running in, and he was used to children. He travels very well and is really responsive to sit and hear Ozzy, but is getting independent. It's crazy in our living room. We don't have a nice big farmhouse kitchen with a hard floor. We have a 10-year-old terrier of indeterminate heritage. She was a rescue at one year old. She is very much my wife's dog and is reasonably well behaved, but she will not tolerate Ozzy jumping around her. Ozzy is relentless and not listening to her body language, though we saw a slight improvement in both dogs this morning. I started the recall training in the living room using Ozzy Cum as the cue, but even using cheese, pheasant, and other tasty stuff, Ozzy finds our living room too exciting, especially if our other dog is nearby. So I moved outside where we have a fully paved area that's got high walls on both sides, gates across both ends, and half its length roofed over. I've been doing his recall training there for six days now using the small chunks of pheasant, fully checked to ensure there's no shot in it. He's doing really well with the recall. Question 1A. Have I done the right thing in moving his recall training outside? Question 1b, if I have, should I substitute this outdoor area for all other training that normally begins indoors? As he is so drawn to everything he can get his teeth into in the living room and our older dog is intolerant of his bounciness, I've been using a short, long line and harness whenever he is out of the crate. When he is outside doing his walking to heel training, going to the toilet, learning to sit before going through doors and gates and playing the go sniff game, he's generally fine with a short, long line. But indoors, after 20 or 30 minutes, he gets very frustrated with both the harness and line, chewing at both, running around, trashing his rope chews, pulling his bedding out of his crate, throwing it around, growling and yapping at all this in a frustrated rather angry way. Oh, frustrated rather than angry way. At these times, I try to reignite his interest in his toys or give him a treat-filled Kong, but his renewed interest is very short-lived. When I have to untangle him from the line, especially when it's in his mouth, he usually ends up grabbing my hand or fingers, though not in a bad way. I don't jerk the harness, but I do hold it tightly. I'm a bit concerned that when he takes a run to attempt to get up onto a chair or go into the log basket, he doesn't affect to get a jerk on the line, has flipped backwards on occasion. When he gets out of the crate in the mornings, he's very excited, but will sit till I open the crate door. He's very hungry and needs the toilet. I've been putting his harness on as soon as he comes out of the crate in the morning so I can train him to walk out of the house to go to the toilet and get his breakfast. Putting his harness on is now a major struggle, but once on, he's okay until he's no longer training, eating or happily playing, and the frustration with not being loose sets in. Question 2a, am I doing the right thing using the short long line? Question 2b, am I using it correctly? Question 2c, do you have suggestions on how to stop the frustration and problems getting the harness on? Regards, David. There's a lot of questions, David, here. So let's take this apart a bit. So generally, you're having problems with how to manage your puppy inside the house, particularly in the presence of your other dog, I think. So... I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. 
So, I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. So let's just talk about that, how to set your, your house up. This is, by the way, is not gundog specific in any way, shape or form, although you have a gundog. So again, this is the same thing that I would say that I've just said to Matthew um, in that you don't need help from a gundog trainer for these issues. Any experienced force-free trainer can help you with these issues. I think it's really important that people who own gundog puppies and are having problems with their puppy which are not necessarily related to how to train them to be a gundog how to train them to take carts how to train them to do gundog specific behaviors that these people go and make use of force-free trainers out there because they can help you it doesn't need to be a gundog trainer in fact you don't actually need a force-free gundog trainer until your dog is some way some way on with their training so if you go to a good general training class with your dog it's sort of general clicker training class general force free training class you'll be training your dog to come back to a recall you'll be training your dog to walk at heel you'll be training your dog to do sit stays so all of this is just part of any good class and you don't it doesn't need to be a gun dog class in fact i highly recommend because most classes are around and about everywhere and actually not uh, most gun dog classes that are around and about are not force free i highly recommend that all of your initial training actually is general training in general classes so you're getting your dog used to working in the presence of other dogs focusing on you in the presence of people and you're getting help with all of these issues which are not at all gun dog related which you can have help just like anybody else can have help with um so that's that's the first thing that i would say um i think sometimes people who uh come from a gun dog perspective and are kind of starting from that world don't realize that this other world is very relevant to them and very useful to them and and potentially could be overlooked by them. So go and get that help from people, from trainers, even though they're not gun dog trainers, they're force-free general trainers. And you can find those by looking online. If you're in the UK, you can look at the APDT website, the IMDT website, PPG website. There was lots of different lists of force-free trainers because there's lots of different organizations which credit force-free trainers so go check it out but i'm going to answer your questions because you need help so the first thing to say is about your older dog so you've got a 10 year old terrier and you know a 10 year old terrier is getting on a bit 
they are not going to appreciate a puppy jumping around all over them. Same goes for the vast majority of older dogs. They're not going to want to have a puppy jumping on the head. I mean, imagine if someone brought a three-year-old child to your office and told you that you now had to share your office with a three-year-old child and the no one's going to stop the three-year-old child from running up to you and you have no relationship with the child you don't know them they're just somebody else's child that's been stuck in this room with you i mean it would probably drive you insane so you need to find some way to separate your your older dog and your puppy and it sounds like the harness and long line thing is not working for you it does it does sometimes work for some people if you've got a puppy which is not particularly high energy which is happy just to kind of lie about and chew things um, and, you know, isn't getting frustrated by the fact they're tied to something. The the, the harness and the long line idea it, it can work for those kinds of puppies. But if you've got a puppy which is a bit higher energy, that is not going to work for all the reasons that you have found. So you're going to need to separate out physically your your the space that you have. You don't really describe that in much detail here. But you do need to find some way to, to partition off your house between so you see your old dog has an area maybe the living room and your puppy has an area maybe the kitchen and doesn't mean that they can never go into the other area but when they do go into the other area you have to be present to supervise things and to separate and so on and so forth more than when they are separated when you can kind of let them um entertain themselves a little bit more does that make sense so I mean, for me, when I when we have puppies, we have the kitchen, which is stair-gated off from the rest of the house, and the puppy has their crate in the kitchen. And that's basically the puppy's home, in a way. The puppy sleeps under the kitchen table. At first, if the pup's getting used to it, they may sleep by our bed. And then once after the first few nights, they're usually okay to sleep under the kitchen table in the crate there. And if necessary, we can sleep by the crate in the kitchen. But the kitchen is there is their, is their room, is their home, not the rest of the house. The rest of the house is for the other dogs and they can move around the rooms as, as they will. So the older dogs will come through the kitchen because that is the way to get outside. And so there will be some contact between the pup and the older dogs, but there's not any sort of extended hanging out with each other. Every evening, the puppy will come into the rest of the house and we'll all hang out together in the same space for however long we can tolerate and bear it. So until the puppy is... <laughs> being too much of a pain in the bum for the other dogs or for us, we can all hang out together there. And if we need to, or when we need to, we'll just take the puppy back into the kitchen again. And this just happens every single evening until eventually I think the pup kind of habituates to the presence of the older dogs. It all becomes less exciting. Pups got a bit older and eventually everyone's able to relax in each other's presence, at which point the need to keep the pup in the kitchen um, is kind of not there anymore. Pup's toilet trained. And so then the puppy comes into the rest of the house and kind of joins the rest of the household, as it were. But that's probably not going to be until the pup's about six months old, to be honest. So until they're six months old, they're effectively living separated off from the other dogs in the kitchen. Um, Not to say they don't have any contact, as I just described, but they're not, you know, they are separated the vast majority of the time. And if we've got a dog which particularly doesn't appreciate puppies, which we did have with our, our now gone long gone Vimarana slate um she really hated every puppy that we added to the household every puppy would get growled at would get frozen with a stare and growled at um and if that puppy didn't hear that would get you know pinned to the floor and growled at and so we'd obviously not let that happen because it's not great for the pup's development to be experiencing that and so when the puppy came into the room where slate was the pup would have to be on a harness and on a long line 
um, house line and we would have to prevent the pup from being able to reach Slate so that the Slate felt that she was safe and she had space and she wasn't going to get interfered with by the pup. And we would just do that every single evening in our evening sessions all together until eventually, many months later, it would take months, Slate would warm up to the pup and begin to allow the pup to just move around her and exist and be a dog in her presence without reacting like this. But it would take months. And the first time we did it, we were very worried because we didn't have um, a history of having successfully done it before. And so we didn't know if we were actually going to be able to integrate a puppy into the household with Slate. But once we'd done it, once or twice, we realized that actually it just takes a few months and we just have to keep this gradual exposure going. But we also have to stop the puppy from reaching Slate. And so they could never be free in the same room together at all until the pup was probably over six months old. So so that's the first thing to say. I think people underestimate how much supervision is often needed when you add a pup to a household, how much separation of the puppy from the other dogs is often needed as well. Not always, sometimes... Uh, particularly if your other dogs are quite young still and quite playful they might really love the puppy you might just want to separate them for your own sanity rather than for the puppy's sake or for the older dog's sake but everybody's got to be happy and that includes you so you have to be okay with whatever the energy levels are and also they have to be physically safe for everybody the puppy has to be happy and not feeling that they are being told off by the older dog so the thing to say about puppies as well is that Puppies are not very good when they are young at reading body language from older dogs. Older dogs can do all this really great body language, like turning their head away or, you know, giving out all these subtle calming signals to the puppy saying, please don't come closer. I don't really want to know you right now. The puppy appears to show absolutely no awareness of any of these cues whatsoever and keeps coming bumbling up into the adult dog's space. And then the adult dog, you know, goes bananas and really 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 strongly tells the puppy off which isn't great for the puppy to experience and can actually long-term affect the way that the puppy relates to that older dog and they can always they can end up always being a bit wary of that dog not ever really trying to initiate play with that dog because they received a really scary um experience i was gonna say correction but i don't like that word experience with the older dog they had a really bad experience with that older dog so the reason for that is that there's something, there's some development needed and it's a sort of a developmental thing which happens at a certain age and, and point in the puppy's development where they start to be able to understand dog body language better. And by the way, this is another reason why it's a good idea to feed a puppy separately from the older dogs because the puppy will finish their food and will probably not think anything of trying to go and get somebody else's food. And I think that, you know, there are many people who would say, oh, this is good. The puppy's got to learn. The puppy's got to be told. But no, they actually, they they don't because it's not it's not good in the long term for them to experience that from the older dog and it can permanently affect the way they relate to that dog in the future and maybe dogs generally if they generalize from that dog and secondly if you prevent the puppy from experiencing this the puppy still develops the skills to understand subtle canine body language in the future so they don't actually need to experience this in order to have those social skills so if you prevent the pup from wandering up to the older dog and getting told off if you prevent the pup from wandering up to the dog's food and trying to eat it and you just sort of manage that situation so that it doesn't happen when your pup is i don't know how old i don't know what point this this happens i think it's sometime around four four or five months you'll suddenly start to see the pup is responding to these cues which the other dogs are giving out and is moving away and is not continuing to approach. And it's as if they suddenly develop a much more sophisticated level of communication. It's a little bit like, you know, human children are not born 
being able to speak. They have to learn language, human language, and they have to understand lots of things to do with how to engage in conversation with other people and turn-taking and all of this sort of stuff. And it, it takes time. It's not something they're just born knowing. And it's the same thing with the puppy. It's a developmental stage that their brain has to go through and they need time. And you've got to protect your pup from having negative experiences with the other dogs in the house while they sort of mature in this way. So that's the first thing that I would say. That wasn't one of your questions at all, but that's the first thing I would say. So your questions, have you done the right thing moving the recall training outside? Yes, if you found a location where your puppy is better able to focus on you than in the house. I mean, for most people in the house would be the least distracting place and that would be the place to start your recall training. But if for some reason your house is not the least distracting place for your puppy, then for sure it makes good sense to take the recall training to a less distracting place. And should you substitute this outdoor area for all other training that normally begins indoors? Possibly if you find that that situation continues and if your puppy continues to be able to focus better on you in that outdoor area than indoors, for sure. So your other questions in in terms of your, your house line and your harness, I would suggest you don't have the house line or the harness on the pup when they are inside. So you need to to figure out something involving a stair gate so that you have a room where the puppy is contained by gates. You can use a pen sometimes. Some people like to use like an exercise pen. I don't like that so much because I feel that I want to be in the space with the puppy and not separated from the puppy with the pup inside a pen and me on the other side of the pen. So I like to have like my desk set up in the kitchen when the pup is in the kitchen. So basically anytime the puppy is out of their crate and in the kitchen, which is stairgated, I will be in the kitchen as well. I'll usually be working at my computer on the kitchen table um, or, you know, cleaning or loading the dishwasher or cooking or doing something in the kitchen while the pup is out of the crate. So I'm able to supervise only when the pup goes in their crate and goes to sleep then I will leave the kitchen area and go into the rest of the house where the other dogs are. And so this is quite intensive and that is going to be a lot of time that you're spending in your kitchen at first, if you're in the kitchen. But I think it's really necessary um, in terms of the supervision and in terms of the pup not feeling like they're shut away from you and developing separation issues as well. So um, yeah, so basically ditch your harness, ditch your long line inside those are great things to use outside but not necessarily inside for many pups so am i doing the correct right thing using the short long line i think we've covered that am i using it correctly um i think we've covered that too do you have suggestions on how to sort the frustration and problems getting the harness on yeah i think that um the best way to put your harness on when you do want to put it on is to take a treat and put it through the head hole of the harness while the puppy is nibbling that treat and through the head hole of the harness, you gently put it on over the puppy's head. That's if it's a harness that has to go on over the pup's head. Then you take a couple more treats and you sprinkle them on the floor just directly under the puppy's nose. While the puppy's eating those treats, you can do up the side clips of the harness. So it's about using food to keep the puppy's attention while you're putting the harness on. And this is really important because a lot of dogs appear to be fine having the harness put on at first, but over the, <laughs> over months start to experience it's quite aversive. And then you suddenly have people saying, my puppy's running away from me when I get the harness out. And why is this happening? And they used to be completely fine with it. And so I would just recommend that as a preventative measure, you just always use treats every time you put the harness on. I mean, it takes one second just to grab it. It doesn't have to be anything tasty, just some kibble when you put the harness on the pup. But I do think it's not realistic to expect to put the harness on your pup when they come out of the crate and they're hungry and they need the toilet. And to go through all of this just for your pup to be able to go outside 
And then to have this expectation as well that you want to train him to walk out of the house to go to the toilet. I mean, I would just forget about all of that, frankly. So why not have a little a collar on your pup when they're in the crate? And or if you don't want your pup to be in the crate with a collar, when you can just pop the collar around the neck when you open the crate door and the long line or the house line will be attached to that collar. And then you just immediately take your pup outside to the toilet so that you don't have to have this faff about putting the harness on when they come out of the crate just to go to the toilet. And equally, I think it's probably for a 12-year-old puppy um, or even for a young, any puppy, to expect them to to walk at heel out of the house to go to the toilet is probably, is probably a bit much as well. So I think decide when you want heel work to be happening and when when you were just managing things by holding on to the end of the house line, frankly. And with pups, there's going to be a lot of just managing things by holding the end of the long line. And, you know, that's going to be what you're doing a lot of the time with it rather than expecting heel work. So I would try to discourage your puppy from pulling you on the on the house line. But you can do that by walking in a bit of a circle, walking backwards, walking in zigzags. Um, but just, you know, or actually just walking or running a little bit quicker to, till you get outside to the toilet place. Um, so you're just trying to avoid that, that the pup from learning that if they pull, they get to where they want to get to. But apart from that, I wouldn't really expect like perfect heel work to get out of the house, to go to the toilet. <laughs> That's not very realistic. So yeah, there's many things you can change there. Um, I hope that helps. I think I've answered all of your questions at this point, but the main thing is you need to manage contact with your older dog and you need to find out a way to se- separate and partition your house, which does not, which means that you don't need to have the harness and the house lent on your pup because um, then they can be free in whatever room it is that they're in because they're contained within that room by the stair gates. And you've also puppy-proofed the room. So you've kind of picked up everything the pup might try and get into, might try and chew, might try and eat or run around with, um, and so on and so forth. And you've provided lots of toys and things that they are allowed to interact with so that that's going to keep their attention and focus. So I think that I've covered everything there. But but yeah, again, I just want to stress that none of these things are about owning a gun dog or raising a gun dog. So you can get this kind of help from any force-free trainer and any sort of training class as well. So definitely make sure you, you take advantage of that because I think a lot of people coming from, you know, a, a gun dog background think that all of that is not relevant to them because it's for pet owners and it's for it's not what they want to do with their dog. And actually, that's not true when it comes to basic training. Basic training of um, gun dogs is the same as good basic training general obedience for all dogs so do go and seek out what you can learn from classes in your area i hope that helps hold the line that's all for this episode everyone and i'll see you again soon hold the line.